from the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. Okay, Mark, I feel like I'm still processing last week between Megan and Harry, JLo's breakup, and of course, the Adam Driver and Lady Gaga photos from House of Gucci that like practically broke Twitter. But this week, the Oscar nominations are out. How are you feeling as we're getting closer to the show? Well, that yeah, once the nominations come out, it sort of A, it like obliterates everything you remember from before. And then B, it just totally resets the table for everything moving forward. So it like it narrows down the movies that we sort of have to talk about. But then also now there's kind of a whole new excitement of moving from this like very concentrated period from here to the awards. I'm just excited to see like after what we saw with the Globes, what is the ceremony going to look like? Well, the production team that they have for the Oscars with Stacey Scher, Jesse Collins and Steven Soderbergh. There are going to be some real surprises there, and I'm with you. I can't wait to see what it turns out to be. Well, speaking of awards, your guest today has been getting a ton of accolades lately. He won the Golden Globe for acting in Borat's subsequent movie film. And between that and the trial of the Chicago 7, he's also been nominated for SAG, PGA, and WGA awards. And as of this week, two Oscars. Talk to me about who we have today, Mark. That would be Sasha Baron Cohen. And yeah, he talks not only about his longstanding interest in Abby Hoffman, who he plays in Trials of the Chicago 7, but also all that went into the making of Borat, subsequent movie film. I suppose to me, it's all connected. Chicago 7, Borat, and my advocacy, there is this common message across all three, which is the importance of truth and danger of lies. And in so many ways, I'm still shocked that this interview even happened because for so long Sasha didn't do interviews as himself but recently and especially on this press cycle he he is and it's something that we we talked about in in the interview I think we all have this idea of who he is so it's been interesting to see and like read the interviews to sort of piece together oh this is Sasha Baron Cohen and you know we're gonna get to your conversation in just a moment but first uh, we're gonna take a short break Our nation has endured. Let's make sure the facts do, too. Pay $1 for eight weeks and get a perspective unlike anywhere else. Go to latimes.com slash subscribe. Los Angeles Times, the state of what's next. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, the Oscar nominations were announced Monday. So before we get to Mark's conversation with Sasha, we called our columnist Glenn Whip to get his reaction to what went down. Hey, Glenn, tell me what you thought about Monday's nominations. You know, you always look at these Oscar nominations and you have your perfect list of people and performances and movies you want to see nominated. And inevitably, they can't all be there, but... Looking at what was nominated this year is actually pretty pretty great list. I liked it. But Glenn, I mean, it's kind of the, the eternal problem of the Academy. For everything that you can like in these nominations, for you know, example, there are two women nominated for Best Director for the first time. 
there's always something to then sort of like that feels like a negative or kind of holds it back, such as the fact that in Best Director, there were no black filmmakers recognized, even though this year felt like a year with a lot of very eligible, very worthy projects. So do you feel like it's always kind of like, you know, maybe not one step forward, two steps back, but that like, it's always kind of on balance. There's always like something good, something bad about the nominations. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on your perspective. And uh, my perspective right now is, you know, we're just coming off daylight savings time and I couldn't get much sleep last night. And so I'm running on fumes and maybe it's just like I'm giddy and lacking oxygen, brain cell kind of thing. But I feel pretty good about these Oscar nominations, Mark. I mean, I was talking to a screenwriter this morning and it was just like, I said the words out loud, two women were nominated for best director for the first time in history. And just saying those words out loud, we were just kind of both laughing at the absurdity that it's 2021. And this is the first time ever that two women have been nominated in that category in the same year. So, you know, and then you look at a pretty landmark slate of acting nominations in terms of representation, then just some kind of weird surprises like, you know, they were running down the list of supporting actor nominees and they announced these alphabetically. So it's like Daniel Kluya and you're going through all the people that you know are going to, Paul Racy, yes, for Sound of Metal. He made it great. And then they get to the, I think it was the last one, Lakeith Stanfield. I was like, what? Because he was campaigned in lead actor. And here he was turning up and supporting, which just is bizarre. And I, I talked to the people who ran the campaign, and they have no idea what happened either. I mean, you look at some of the times in the past where actors have been you know, flipped from supporting to lead or lead to supporting. You can kind of see it. But here you have a movie called Judas and the Black Messiah. So you got two title characters and both the title characters are supporting actor nominees, which makes you wonder, well, who's the movie about? But then again, they were both nominated. So I think that's pretty great. And I'm not going to raise any objections. It's just great to see Lakeith in there. But then in kind of a nuts and bolts way, do you think there's going to be some concern that like they're going to cancel each other out? I think Daniel in particular seems, you know, pretty strong to to win, but he's going to have some votes siphoned off possibly by Lakeith. Right. You never know how those things play out. I mean, Daniel Kaluuya was such a heavy favorite, I think, to win this Oscar that a lot of times it doesn't matter if there's another cast member in the category. But I mean... Saying that out loud, now just kind of thinking about it, I mean, Lakeith is just as good as Kaluuya in the film. I mean, why not split the vote? Maybe that will happen. Maybe Lakeith will win. You know, maybe he shows up in this category and it's like starts his own momentum. But sometimes these narratives get kind of set in stone. And I mean, there's still six weeks till the Oscars. A lot of time. Voting doesn't begin for a while, so a lot of time to start a new narrative. During this whole run-up to nominations, how much did you think about the what-ifs? Like, if this had been a normal season, if all the movies had come out like they were expected to, what would it have looked like? Did you think much about that? I think the only time I really 
thought about it deeply was about the Christopher Nolan movie Tenet, which was the big, you know, summer movie that was going to kind of Warner Brothers moved all their movies off of 2020, except for that one. And it ended up being released in theaters. And there was so much hype around it. Like, is Tenet going to save movie theaters? Is Tenet going to save cinema? And then it was weird because it did okay at the box office. And then Warner Brothers and Nolan had some kind of big spat. And there were 224 movies, I believe, on the Academy's streaming platform. And Tenet wasn't one of them. And they didn't mail out DVDs of Tenet. It only got two nominations today in a year where you would think that a big kind of crafts spectacular movie like this would have shown up more, got the same number of nominations as Pinocchio, which I bet you don't even know that there was a Pinocchio movie this year, but there was, and it starred Roberto Benigni, but he wasn't playing Pinocchio. He was playing Geppetto, right? Can you fill me in, Mark? Because I just kind of discovered Pinocchio a little while back myself. Well, I know the confusion is that Roberto Benigni has previously starred in a Pinocchio movie. This is a different new Pinocchio movie. Yeah. That's actually supposed to be pretty good, I hear. Like, not not like his first Pinocchio movie, which kind of killed his career. I want a whole oral history on how this happened. (laughs) I think for me as, you know, a fan of movies and someone that really loved going to the theaters every week, that's something that as the nominations came out, like, again, I am sort of faced with the fact that I haven't seen a lot of the nominees. And that's very frustrating because You know, I want to see Judas and the Black Messiah and I missed my chance because it's now off HBO Max. And so there's all these like things I have to like read up on on what is still available. And it's sort of depressing in a weird way to watch the movie in a way that I don't typically like to watch movies. I don't I'm not like a purist in like movies should only be watched in a movie theater. But I do miss the sort of action of seeing a movie in a movie theater. And I'm just reminded of how much I've missed already. I know, right? Well, what were you doing the last three weeks, Yvonne? You had your window for Judas and the Black Messiah. But now theaters are, I guess, open here in Los Angeles. So you could go see. I don't have my vaccine, I know, Glenn. I know, right? I mean, we're, I was just talking about that with somebody this morning. It's like, well, are you going back to see a movie in a movie theater not until you get the vaccine, for sure. No, no. Now, Glenn, do you, when you look at these movies that were nominated for Best Picture, as Yvonne kind of said, you know, there was concern that this was going to seem like an asterisk year, that like, for whatever reason, because of all the movies that didn't come out, that somehow this would seem like a weak field or it wouldn't be quite as powerful as it might have been. But, you know, you look at these eight movies they seem like they could be a pretty, you know, a normal, legitimate Oscar field. There's no asterisk about these movies, I don't think. I Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, the one thing that you don't see on there is like a big kind of studio film, like say if um, Spielberg's West Side Story had landed this year or maybe Dune, something like that, that was like a really well-crafted studio movie. But I think this Slate of Eight is a pretty... I'm like rhyming here. This slate of eight is really great. 
I'm Bob Dylan. Slate Eight is really great. <laughs> now, see, this is the lack of sleep coming back again. But no, you look at these movies, and Yvonne, it's just, I'm sorry. I apologize to everyone listening to this. But you look at these eight movies, and yeah, I think if you go back, you know, the past five, 10 years, this is not an asterisk year. There's some great movies that I think are going to hold up really well. Well, the one movie that I found people were sort of like, would this have happened in a normal year, was Mank. I mean, I don't know. Mark, you're a film buff. You're you're the kind of guy I feel like Mank was created for, you know, somebody who appreciates film history. You're a cineast. You're a member of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. This movie about the creation of Citizen Kane and Orson Welles and... Herman Mankiewicz. I mean, this is like tailor-made for for me and you. Maybe not Yvonne, but certainly for a lot of members of the Academy, too. Mank is a weird movie because it ended up with 10 nominations, and it still feels like nobody likes it. I, I still talk to people, and I don't know anyone who loves this movie. Um, Justin Chang, our film critic, likes it a lot. I like it a lot. But for a movie that gets 10 nominations, you'd think there would be a lot more enthusiasm for it. And for most people, it just felt like a chore to have to to slog through it. Also, it's kind of ironic that for a movie that's about the writing of the screenplay of this very famous movie, its screenplay was probably the most notable category. It was not included in, made all the more odd in the fact that the, you know, the screenplay obviously written by Jack Fincher, the late father of the film's director, David Fincher. This was really kind of a labor of love for David Fincher, partly in tribute to his father. And so for that aspect of the movie to not be recognized certainly feels notable and definitely feels like the good people of the Academy making some kind of statement as far as their true feelings about the movie. Right. Or at least the writer's branch voters who vote on screenplay. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Eric Roth, one of the producers of Mank this morning, and I think he worked on the screenplay too. Not to toot my own horn, but yeah, he was saying, yeah, I read your predictions and you had that snub in there, didn't you? That was the one time I hoped you wouldn't be right. I kind of still thought Mank would make it in. And the fact that its screenplay wasn't nominated probably dooms dooms it. I think it's going to be one of those movies that has like double-digit nominations and then probably ends up winning maybe one Oscar. Although there were definitely some exciting and I think some definite surprises among the screenplay nominations. A big one was for the film The White Tiger. It's an adapted screenplay, Ramin Barani being nominated there. I don't know that very many people were predicting that. And I think just being able to say Oscar nominee Ramin Barani is very exciting. The nomination for Kemp Powers for One Night in Miami is probably the you know, along with Best Actor nomination is really the strongest recognition for that film as well. It was really left out of some of the the other main categories. And then on the original side, you know, To See Sound of Metal nominated, I think was a bit of a surprise for people. And then as much as it was maybe expected, I'm still getting my head around the idea of, you know, Promising Young Woman as like an Academy picture. And that was really one of the big sort of winners of the the day with, I, th- I think it was five nominations for Promising Young Woman, six nominations for Sound of Metal. And th- those are movies that, you know, you do not think of as sort of traditional Oscar movies. The, the English patient, they are not. Yeah. I mean, you look at Emerald Fennell, three nominations, director, writer, and as a producer of 
Promising Young Woman. And Promising Young Woman has all those kind of key nominations that you look for in a Best Picture winner. But that would be a crazy Best Picture winner, wouldn't it? It can happen. What are you most looking forward to on the big night? Mm, I, I somehow hope that Alan Kim um, shows up in a tuxedo to support his uh, castmates, which I believe he will. That sight will bring me joy, which I still feel like we need as much of in our lives as we can find. So I'm looking forward to, I don't know, right now it feels like Nomadland still is kind of the front runner. I guess what I'm looking forward to is is seeing what Steven Soderbergh can do with this ceremony. I hope that he just blows it up. I hope it's like nothing we've ever seen before. And half the stuff is like, oh my God, I can't believe that's that didn't work. But then half the stuff is like, oh my God, that was great. It was really weird to watch the Globes be such a train wreck after I thought the Emmys did a decent job and didn't watch the Grammys because I was trying to prepare myself mentally for the pre-dawn Oscar nominations. Well, I think the fact that the ceremony itself is going to be in part at the Dolby Theater and also in part at Union Station downtown, just like what are the logistics of that? What is that show going to look like? I think is very exciting. And of course, I'll be looking forward to the performance of Best Song nominee Husevik from Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. I'm also looking forward to a female director win. I just want to see one of them win, and I will be hopeful for that. Well, Glenn, I'm really disappointed that you didn't watch the Grammys because I was really hoping to get your takeaways from that. But I guess we'll save that for another time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, as always. Go get some sleep. Okay. All right, guys, that was fun. But now let's get to Mark's conversation with Sasha Baron Cohen. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us today. And and also congratulations on all the recognition you've been getting for both films so far this season. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you on. And listen, um, it's nice to get recognized. What can I say? I won't lie. <laughs> and now, earlier in your career, you would very rarely do interviews out of character. I mean, to some extent, I'm still surprised I'm talking to you now, but it seems that over the last few years, you've been doing progressively more interviews as yourself and, and sort of this cycle, you really have been stepping out quite a bit. What what changed for you? Um, it's only really the last year and a half. And firstly, I far preferred not stepping out. The aim was always to not become famous as myself. I was very happy for my characters to be well known and me to be uh, anonymous. In fact, I remember once when the first Ali G video, yes, that's how long I've been around, came out. And I was in a record store, HMV on Oxford Street in London. And I was standing as Borat, dressed fully as Borat, around the stand that had all the Ali G videos in it. And all my biggest fans were buying this video. And nobody realized that they were standing next to me. Um, so that, to me, was a great pleasure, being anonymous. However, under Trump, I felt I couldn't really be a bystander. I felt that 
American democracy was in danger, not saying that I could do anything about it, but I felt I had to take a stand. And so after a lot of thought, I came out of the shadows and gave a speech at the Anti-Defamation League in late 2019. It was the first time I'd ever given a major speech in my own voice. And I, you know, broke my silence, really, because I was very worried about the election and I was worried that Facebook and social media companies, by being the most powerful propaganda machine in history, would help Trump win again by amplifying his conspiracy theories and lies and hate. That's the reason why I've stepped out. I'm reluctant. And I may well regret it. <laughs> well, I was so struck. I, I saw you recently did an interview on MSNBC and the little on-screen description for you, it said actor and activist. And I just wonder how you feel about that role and what it's been like for you, considering that you tried to kind of be so private and stay in the shadows for so long. What has it been like for you sort of stepping forward in this way? Well, you know, I've tried to make an impact in the past by remaining silent and just using financial means to donate to charities and try to talk to organizations that I felt would listen. I was very unimpactful. I was very concerned at the Syrian civil war from 2011 and the repercussions of that. And I tried to have an impact there, but it, it was very, very limited. Uh, and I was very wary of becoming a celebrity and telling people to what I thought, because I have a fundamental issue with people just because they happen to be on screen thinking that their views are more valid or important than other people. However, when it came to social media, um, I felt people weren't really talking about the issues. And I hadn't couldn't read it anywhere. And so I felt obligated to not be a bystander and actually speak up and warn about the danger of lies and the importance of truth. And I suppose to me, it's all connected. Chicago 7, Borat, and my advocacy, there is this common message across all three, which is the importance of truth and danger of lies. You know, it's kind of just a fluke of timing. Chicago 7, obviously, is a project that's been in the work for many, many years. Borat, subsequent movie film, seems to have happened very quickly. So it really is kind of a fluke that they've come out so close together and do seem to be making this sort of united statement from you. What has it been like for you to have these two films in particular out so close together? Well, it's a fluke that they came out together. It's not a coincidence that I'm in both of them. Uh, so I made a active decision to stop shooting Borat, which I was doing uh, prior to Chicago 7, in order to make that movie, because I felt it was so important that I played Abby Hoffman. I'd been pursuing that role for 13 years. I'd been connected to Abby since the age of 20 when I came across him during my undergraduate thesis in university. You know, I was passionate enough to play Abby that I said to my fellow producers and writers, we're stopping filming on Borat. We had made Borat in order to have it come out just prior to the election. And, you know, my colleagues were very worried that we wouldn't hit the date. And I said, I guarantee you, we'll do it. It'll be fine. This is just a 
two months shoot, but I have to play Abby Hoffman. And then obviously what I didn't know was coming was the pandemic. And there were some very angry words said to me when the pandemic hit. And they said, listen, you've ruined the chances of us making Borat in time for the election. It was close to a miracle that we managed to pull both off. But now what is it about the role of Abby Hoffman and maybe Abby Hoffman as a, as a person that matters so much to you? Why did it mean that much to you to pursue that role for so long and to, and to put your own movie on hold? If I look back at what's, what are the moments in movies that have really moved me, it's when I see a normal person be very courageous. And for some reason, those are the moments where I'm moved to tears. And I was very proud as a Jewish kid in England. There's not many Jews there. There's, you know, it's one in 200 people. So I was very proud when I heard about a period in history which was referred to as the Jewish Black Alliance. And it was a period where Jews were involved 30 times more than most white people in the civil rights movement. And some of those Jews were, you know, radical left-wing protesters who went down the South to protest against systemic racism. One of them was Abby Hoffman. And they, you know, the same as the African-Americans, risked their lives to protest injustice. What's the proof? You know, the, the most famous bit of proof is the killings of Schwerner, Cheney and Goodman, which later got made into a great movie, Mississippi Burning. Those were two Jewish kids and one man of colour, um, Goodman, who were murdered by the KKK. I read about Abby Hoffman there, and I knew that he was this kid who was ready to die to fight against injustice. And then I realised that he then became part of that group of Jewish radicals who were fighting against systemic racism. In the early 60s, they were then fighting against this immoral war in Vietnam. And actually, if you look at the Chicago 7 and that trial, a lot of those people were sort of Jews involved in the early 60s. So he was a hero of mine from the age of 20. Then cut to 13 years ago, I hear that Steven Spielberg is making the movie. And very cheaply, I called him up. And I'd only done Borat at that time. And I said, is there any chance I can audition for Abby Hoffman? And after a long process where he insisted that I perfect the accent... I got the wrong. So now, do you feel like even, you know, when earlier in your career, say with Ali G and Borat, you considered Abby Hoffman an influence and someone that you looked up to? I mean, because his his work and what he did does bear some similarities to the work that you would do in those earlier satirical roles. Yeah, I, I mean, firstly, he was a comedian. You know, as part of my research, I managed to get some stuff out of archives of his stand-up. And he was... A brilliant stand-up. You know, he's very influenced by Lenny Bruce. He wrote down his gags. He was a great off-the-cuff improviser. But, you know, he was a studied comic. And his theatrics, like saying he would levitate the Pentagon, had a purpose. He was, in my opinion, in the great tradition of the Buffon, uh, which is a style of theatre I'd studied under this French clown teacher called Philippe Gaulier. You know, he understood the power of humour and comedy to expose the problems in society and undermine the establishment and humble the powerful. You know, he used to say that sacred cows 
make the tastiest hamburgers. I think I got that right. And so he, you know, he realized if he could make people laugh, he could gain attention, recruit people to the cause. I suppose an allergy and early Borat. Primarily, I wanted to make people laugh, but I realized very early on with Borat, prior to even realizing there was a comedy character, that Borat was a mechanism to get people to open up far more than they would do on documentaries because they felt they were talking to somebody from a different country and that footage would not be seen, you know, by their colleagues and those who would criticize them. So, you know, at its core, this style of comedy was a way to show the underbelly of society, of what people would really talk about behind closed doors. How did it impact your performance, the, the sort of switch in directors with Chicago 7? I mean, you originally were going to be performing with Steven Spielberg as the director, then Aaron Sorkin takes over, he's written the script. Aaron Sorkin obviously has a lot of experience with courtroom dramas, courtroom scenes, and I, I'm just curious, like, what was it like for you as a performer to suddenly be doing his dialogue for him as a director in what really is his arena with courtroom scenes? Was it a real challenge to do those courtroom scenes sort of like for Aaron? Yes, it was completely terrifying. I mean, he's the greatest living screenwriter of our time. And these are some of the greatest actors in the world. So it was a masterclass of actors and you are dealing with language that is incredibly precise. And Aaron has a reputation. You have to have it perfect. So I was shooting during Paul and in the evenings I was trying to learn the script so well that it was completely innate and also trying to perfect this accent and then trying to do the research as well, trying to read and see everything I could about Abby Hoffman uh, so that when I was on set, I could just let it go and be free and just be in the moment and inhabit the character. Uh, you know, but yeah, work with Aaron is intimidating. He's the Shakespeare of modern cinema. Some ways he's better than Shakespeare. He hasn't had a flop like Titus Andronicus. Uh, but I, I really think he's a fantastic director because his vision is so clear when he says he's happy and, you know, he can be really happy, you feel great as an actor. I mean, I'd always push and ask whether I could do a different interpretation and try one more. It was a wonderful experience. You know, I won't lie that, you know, as a writer, as a much lesser writer than him, I tried to pitch lines for the script. You know, every night... Um, I'd email Aaron and, you know, I'd be finding all these incredible lines. You know, the more and more I researched, I was like, we've got to use this line. What about this one? This joke is brilliant, you know. And he'd write back, thank you, Sasha. And then we'd stick with the script as written. Uh, and that's the precision, Aaron's eloquence that you see in the film. And now, does Aaron Sorkin have any tips on how to sort of like get your mouth around Aaron Sorkin's dialogue? Because in particular, the few scenes when the sort of the group of everyone is either in their side room in the court or especially those scenes when they're back at their kind of headquarters in the evenings, the sort of the rat-a-tat rhythms of that dialogue just seems like such a challenge. Like, what are Aaron's tips for dealing with Aaron's dialogue? He doesn't give any tips. There's one thing learning a script and second thing, it just being completely in you. You know, it's like sort of learning Shakespeare where you can reinterpret the words. You can play it in a different way. 
And so my answer to Aaron was, I said, all right, give me another take and I'm going to give you three versions of the line with a little two-second gap so the editor's the editor, brilliant editor, Alan Baumgarten, has a, you know, an in and out. Because I knew through doing Borat and my reality stuff, when you're in a real rush, it's going to be incredibly useful in the edit to have different versions. So I'd give him the version that he was incredibly happy with, and then I'd say, give me one more take, and then I'd give three different takes in that take. That was my way to, you know, respect the budgetary limitations and also give him what he needed, really. And actually, later on, Alan Baumgarten, the editor, said, you know, it was so useful having those different interpretations because sometimes you want a completely different feel. But now, how do you, and I'm sorry if this is sort of naive about the nature of performance, for you in particular, going from the middle of shooting Borat, which is this improvisational, immersive performance that feels like it must be a very different sort of muscle group than doing the courtroom scenes in Trial of Chicago 7. What was shifting gears like that like? And in some ways, I guess the question is like, which is harder? Well, it's not, you know, the process. And again, I'm very reluctant to talk about process. And it's one of the benefits of having not given many interviews over the years. Is I haven't even had to think about it. But the process is, is identical, right? You are trying to inhabit a character and... What's been really nice over the last few months is meeting people who knew Abby and saying that was like spending time with Abby. So I feel, you know, even though I'm not trying to replicate him or do an imitation, you know, the process is the same. So, you know, you really divide it down to one, you know, what's the way they speak, their dialogue. The difference between Aaron and Bora is I'm writing Bora. So Aaron, that's done. That's perfect. You know, obviously, I'll try and tinker with it, but that's done. Two, what is the accent? That's a really tricky thing with um, Abby. It's a Boston accent mixed with Brandeis and Berkeley. I got the best dialect coach in the world, Tim Monick, begged him to work with me. And you're working, you know, hours every day, even during Borat. And then in between takes, I'm listening to Abby Hoffman. So you've got that. Then there's the pitch. You know, where do they speak? What is the actual note that they speak? You know, that's quite high. It's also quite a heady voice. It's in the head. And Abby jumps. So when he gets excited, he goes up an octave and goes up into the, this kind of shrieky, almost Yiddish mama type way of speaking. Then there's the rhythm. Yeah, what's the rhythm of the language? So Abby's rhythm changes when he's in public and when he's private. That's what I became very aware of. I managed to get hold of some footage where he was just around the rest of the Chicago 7. He's a lot more relaxed and there's less of a attempt to make an impression, right? He was very, very aware of the need for publicity, the need for TV. He knew that the trial was not about proving that they were innocent. He knew that the trial was to impress upon the American public the illegitimacy of the Vietnam War. That's voice. Then you've got physicality. You know, how does Borat move? How does he walk? How does he sit? How does he go to the toilet? How does he eat? How does he hold a knife? Does he know how to hold a knife? How does he eat meat? How does he drink one hand, two hand? Where is your center of balance? How does he run? And it's the same for Abby. So Abby, again, I'm looking at the footage and I noticed that 
the way his arms move when he's in public, again, because he has this public private thing, it's almost this act of rebellion, this looseness. And the issue with Abby is, I'm half a foot taller than the real Abby Hoffman, so how do I capture his essence while not being him? Then there's, you know, hair. What do we do? Borat, obviously I'm growing my own hair. Abby, we had a wig made, but I wanted to make sure that it's changing according to each scene. And the hair was really important for Abby because I read that he grew his hair long so he could convince people. Right, his aim is is to stop the war. His aim is to end systemic racism. He grows his hair long to convince hippies to join his cause. Then there's costume. What's Borat doing? And, you know, I, for me, costume goes from, you know, Borat's wearing, you know, underpants that you believe Borat would wear and Abby's wearing underpants that you believe Abby would wear. So everything from top down, I want to be consistent. That was one of my discussions with, Costume was, I go, I want to wear exact costumes that Abby wore. Because he's so particular and he's so aware of the camera, I think that is an indicator into something. You know, he's chosen those clothes. And the question is why and what does that reveal about his personality? So one debate I had with Aaron was there's a hard hat, a workman's hard hat that Abby's wearing. I wore it very early on. Aaron thought it was a little bit too much and a bit too clownish. Then I found a passage in Abby's book called Steal This Book, where he says, when you're going to a protest, wear a, you know, an ex-army helmet, army surplus helmet, or a workman's hard hat, so when you get hit on the head, you don't get your head cracked open. So for me, those things that can be dismissed are actually really interesting ins. You know, so you've got physicality, hair, accent, pitch, uh, rhythm, dialogue, and costume. And then on top of all of it is just the spirit and the attitude. Um, you know, what is Borat's spirit and attitude with Borat? It's optimism and love and being friendly. Obviously, not with everyone. When it comes to Jews, he's less than friendly. But... With Abby, you know, what is it? It's again this charisma, this energy, this hilarity, this brilliant wit, this brilliant mind, but underlying it all, this courage and deadly seriousness about of the man who's ready to die to fight for what he believes in. And then underlying all of that is this fight with depression that ultimately he loses, which ends up costing him his life. Uh, which I didn't want to play overtly, but I was very aware of it in those quieter moments. And the sensitivity of Abby was something that I think Aaron beautifully captured. And the great thing with Aaron is you've got most of your job as an actor is done for you. When you have a script that's so perfectly constructed and the characters are so perfectly envisaged and so complete you've got 70% of your job done for you. Now, that tension that the the movie sets up between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, Tom wanting to work within the system, Abby working outside of or even against it, where do you fall on that? And I, and I ask this in part because you're someone who's made what seem to be these impossible, essentially radical films within the Hollywood studio system, 
you certainly seem to have like found a way to kind of work within the system yourself, but within that tension between Tom and Abby, like what are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, as I said, I'm very wary to push my political views on anyone and you know, that's the reason why the only thing I've really been talking about publicly is social media just because I spend a lot of time speaking to people a lot smarter than me about it. So, you know, I'm not a political theorist. I'm not a somebody who really knows what they're talking about. I'm an actor and comedian, so it's best if I shut up. <laughs> Again, Abby was different. Abby was fundamentally an activist. You know, I'm a comedian and an actor who touches on these things and, you know, with these last four years, I felt as a person, I couldn't just be a bystander. It wasn't enough for me to march on the streets. I felt I could do something that other people couldn't do. I could put in a good performance of Abby Hoffman. I felt I could infiltrate Trump's inner circle. And so I would have felt horrible on November the 4th if I hadn't done what I knew I had a chance to do. It's so interesting how... The- with Chicago 7, even since the movie came out in the fall, I feel like its meaning has sort of evolved and changed a little bit. I think when it first came out, people were really responding to it as the connection it seemed to have to the protests in America last summer. But then since the insurrection of January 6th, I've noticed that some of the trailers have been recut. There's one line in particular that that you have about the fact that there's a sort of a peaceful overthrow of government every four years in the United States. Do you feel like the movie has changed somehow, even in the period of time that it's been out? And have you been surprised, to, considering how long you all have been working on this movie, to have it be so sort of like micro-responsive to things that are happening in the moment? Well, it's a movie that becomes increasingly relevant. When I first got the script with uh, Spielberg, there wasn't an imperative to make it at that time. Then when I read it again... A couple of years ago, it was at the time of the hearings of Brett Kavanaugh. And it felt really relevant. Sorry, relevant. I sound like Ali G. Um, You know, during those hearings, those hearings were supposed to be about justice. But I was seeing profound injustice. You know, you had Professor Ford detailing her allegations. And then I remember, I think it was a senator asking Kavanaugh, you know, do you swear before God that you're telling the truth? And he said, yes, I do. And that was enough for the senator. You saw these two different systems, one based on fact and evidence and science, and the other one based on belief. And it almost echoed what I was seeing in America of scientific reasoning and then conspiracy theories and impulsive actions. Then, obviously, the movie became, as you said, more relevant. You know, the movie's about the importance of truth and the danger of lies and the persistence of systemic racism, amongst other things. And you see in the film the horrific treatment of Bobby Seale, who's the only black defendant. And we were filming, as as we said, in November, prior to the murder of George Floyd, The irony is those people who attacked the Capitol were actually guilty of the exact crime that Chicago 7 were being tried for, which was crossing state lines to incite a riot. I mean, if Donald Trump was in that courtroom, 
and was being tried at the time, it would take the jury about five minutes to convict him. But yes, you know, in a political system where there is injustice, you're going to see the need for political protest. So around the world, we've seen a number of attempts by authoritarians to undermine democracy. And yes, you know, what's the main way you can contest that? It's with peaceful protests. So whether it's in Hong Kong or Belarus or Myanmar or Moscow, there's a resonance of these incredibly courageous protesters who are basically fighting to protect democracy. So as long as there are these attempts to undermine democracy, you're going to hopefully see peaceful protesters trying to fight for it, and hopefully they'll win. I mean, often they're unsuccessful. And then knowing that, if I can ask you about Borat's subsequent movie film, knowing that you made the movie with the intention of, in some way, influencing the election or wanting it to come out before the presidential election, do you feel like you succeeded? Do you feel like the movie did what you wanted it to do in, in making it with this idea of this very specific timing? Yes. Firstly, it was a miracle that we managed to get it out in time for the election. I mean, I realized when we shut down during COVID, one of the editors showed me and Jason Wallen, our director, a clip of Pence saying that there are 15 cases in America and the president said, you know, we've got the pandemic completely under control. It was an epiphany for me because that scene was meant to be at the end of the movie and I realized we have to go out and shoot during the pandemic because the pandemic and the loss of life is a result of Trump's willful negligence, right? It's intentional. It's not coincidental. This is a president and a presidency that rely on conspiracies and lies, and they're spreading conspiracies and lies about COVID that are unkilling hundreds of thousands of Americans needlessly. And, you know, we can look at countries like New Zealand and know that there was a different path. So I felt there was all the more need for me to go out and highlight that willful negligence and murderous spreading of lies. And so, you know, the fact that we even managed to get it out and, you know, I have, we're talking about courage. I have the most courageous crew I think since Fitzcarraldo, I mean, these, you know, men and women were really putting themselves in physical danger. You know, a number of them were hunted by some quite dangerous people afterwards. And Maria Bakalova, you know, she put herself in terrible situations. But we really believed that this was our form of peaceful protest and we had to do that. And, you know, did it change the election? Did it change anyone's vote? I don't know. We have some here occasionally of people who said, oh yeah, I saw Borat and I changed my vote. But I, I think it didn't hurt. And I think probably its biggest impact was undermining Rudy Giuliani. Rudy was the main weapon of the Republican Party in that final period. And he, you know, claimed to have this hard drive filled with evidence of the Biden family being a crime family. And on the day that he was going to deliver that evidence, our movie comes out and there's images of Rudy with his hand down his pants. And instead of being on the offensive, he's on the defensive. And that, I think not only that, 
after the election, he was the main figure trying to spread Trump's big lie of a stolen election. And I think the fact that he had been seen as a as not having much integrity in the Borat film, um, combined with his own uh, ability to undermine that credibility even further, meant that his attempts to undermine the election were less successful. So, you know, did it have an impact? I hope so. Whether it did or didn't, I'm, I'm glad that the election went as it did. I think it's, it's tragic that the conspiracy of a stolen election was spread by social media and, you know, makes me more committed to, you know, fighting that business model that spreads conspiracies. So that's the tragic thing, that those, those people who stormed the Capitol, you know, many of them were normal people who were just fed a diet of lies by people who were gaining power or making money by spreading conspiracies. And that's tragic. And now I I heard an interview recently between Aaron Sorkin and David Fincher, and David Fincher spoke about some photos, some camera tests of you when you were getting ready to play the role of Freddie Mercury, which you ultimately kind of did not come to pass. And I'm so curious, like, are there a lot of roles like that for you where projects that kind of didn't pan out and that Freddie Mercury project in particular, does that feel like sort of one that, that got away? Uh, it wasn't one that got away. I mean, I think that movie would have been very different uh, when it was myself and David Fincher. Fincher had a version of the movie uh, with me, but it was it was very different to the one that came out. So I'm a very reluctant actor. You know, I've really only been in a handful of projects. I've I've been really lucky to work with some of the greatest directors, Scorsese and Tim Burton and Sorkin and Adam McKay and uh, Tom Hooper. But really, I've, I've only done, you know, five or six projects that weren't mine. So ultimately, yeah, there's there's been projects over the years that I maybe should have done, you know, and but didn't through, probably through fear. And the reality is my projects are just, I'm very, very slow at getting them done. And, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're making one of these reality movies, they're just so much harder than a normal movie to make because there's so much other stuff that can go wrong. You know, with Borat, you're, you're not just doing the scenes, you're talking to experts on the Secret Service to ensure that you don't get shot. You know, I, I grew up in London, in northwest London. There was nobody I knew who was a professional actor. There was no one I knew who made a living out of being a comedian or being on TV. So the fact that I could even do that is a real achievement in itself. The fact I ever got to make a TV show, the fact I got to make a movie was well beyond my wildest dreams. So... Should I have taken certain roles over the years? Possibly, but I, I really can't believe what's happened so far. Uh, you were saying, you know, I'm an outsider and I've lived outside the system, and it's true. It seems unbelievable that my style of humour and my style of theatre was able to be funded by any studio. So it, I think it, it's pretty miraculous <laughs> that, I'm even, that I'm even being interviewed by you. <laughs> 
And then just my my last question for you is, is you know, over the last year, so many people have just done so much watching, like they've had to watch so many shows and, and movies just to kind of pass the time. And is there anything that you have seen that's really moved you or stuck out to you? Like, is there anything that you've watched over the past year that you would you would recommend to someone else? I mean, I'm probably not the person to ask because uh, the pandemic hit. And I the first thing I did was I... <laughs> my brain goes to trying to fix impossible things. So first thing I did was I called up everyone wealthy I knew and asked them to try and give PPE and try to do my own bit as well and try to get people to make ventilators and, you know, and then obviously I got into making Borat and I've been busy during the pandemic. So I'm probably not the person to ask about, you know, is there anything obscure that no one else has seen, which, which I've loved. It doesn't have to be obscure. I mean, I really love The Father, actually. I've got to say, Anthony Hopkins, I just think, is amazing. And obviously, Olivia Coleman, who, strangely enough, I met when I was 18 years old. Her father called me up, and I was in Cambridge, and he really wanted her to go to Cambridge. And he said, well, my daughter is an actress. I'd love it if you took her around for the day. So I was lucky enough to spend a day with her when I was... Uh, 18 or so and I mean she's become what an impressive global star I mean incredible well Sasha Baron Cohen thank you so much for for joining us today thank you Mark I hope you got something out of that and this uh, hopefully I can retreat into the shadows pretty soon You know, Mark, it's been so interesting to learn about what it was like working on the trial of the Chicago 7. I liked when when Sasha talked about the Abby Hoffman quotes he tried to include in the script with no success. But, you know, I also read an interview where Jeremy Strong talked about how he planted a fart machine on set and used it to sort of get under the skin of Frank Langella, who plays the judge. And he would set it off before a close-up scene to sort of piss him off. Did you know about that? I think I'd seen that too. And I, you know, I think of Frank Langella as a very dignified actor and man of the theater. I guess I'm not really familiar with the culture of onset pranks. We don't do that to each other, like in our office, for example. And so I can't even imagine what that would be like. <laughs> not yet. But, you know, I hadn't known about Sasha's own connection to Hoffman, you know, writing his college thesis um, on Jews and the civil rights movement. And that's like quite a full circle moment. Like they both have made careers of political self-expression through their comedic stunts. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, it's interesting to think of someone like Abby Hoffman, who was an influence on what Sasha was doing. And now for Sasha to get a chance to actually play him like this you can see why he, you know, likely connected so strongly with, with the role. Well, before we wrap up this week's episode, tell me what you've been watching. Well, I watched a couple things. I mean, one was a, a new film. It's available on through virtual cinemas called The Inheritance. It's the first feature film made by artist Ifrahim Asili. And it's kind of a really fascinating mix of like fiction feature, documentary, memoir, it draws from his own childhood. He grew up around a, 
a sort of a communal living situation and, and the film deals with that and sort of black politics. And it's really just a, like a fascinating movie. And it also draws extensively from this Jean-Luc Godard film from the 60s called La Chinois that was also about like a group of young activists living together in a commune. And the way it just, it sort of sounds like it's this crazy mishmash, but it really comes together in this just fascinating way. So I, I really enjoyed that movie. And then I also, uh, this is going to be a bit of a humble brag, I interviewed the filmmaker and comedian Albert Brooks. And so for a story I have coming out about the 30th anniversary of his film, Defending Your Life, took that as an excuse, like one needs an excuse, to revisit some some Albert Brooks films. Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because, and this just happened like coincidentally, like I have been on a Meryl Streep binge like the last few days. It started with Kramer versus Kramer, rewatching that. And then it led to me going down to heartburn. And then I pulled up. It's complicated, obviously. And then when you were mentioning before we started recording about your Albert Brooks interview, I was like, oh, my God, I need to watch Defending Your Life. And that's when you mentioned that you had watched it and you're like, it's on HBO Max. So that is what I'm going to be doing today for sure. Do you have any other Merrill recommendations you think I should pull out of the vault? Silkwood is uh, a really, I think, one of her best performances in a, a movie that I like a whole lot. And then also, I'm a big fan of her more recent performance in Ricky and the Flash, you know, which is the last film directed by Jonathan Demme. And that movie I find to be just like a lot of fun. And it is kind of a side of Meryl we don't see a lot of. I'm going to add that to my list. Well, wait, besides your, your Meryl kick, have you been watching anything else? Well, I've been keeping up with the real world's uh, New York reunion of sorts. And, you know, it's still satisfying my needs. I was watching the new episodes of Shrill's final season, but that's not back for a while. My TV viewing has gone down a little bit. There's just not a lot of new releases lately. So that's why I've been turning to movies a little bit more in this time. We on the movie side, we welcome you. Thank you. Well, we've got another film interview next week, Mark. And, you know, I feel bad, but I am coming back to talk more to TV stars soon. But who are you talking to? I'm talking to Garrett Bradley, the director of the documentary Time. It's the story of a woman named Fox Rich who fights for 21 years to free her husband from prison. Garrett won the documentary directing prize when the film premiered at Sundance last year. And Time this week got an Oscar nomination for documentary feature. Having to go back to the question of, again, what is the intention in wanting to make this film? Every project I make starts off with conversations and asking that question with the people I'm, I'm making films with. And Fox and the family said, our story is the story of 2.3 million other American families. We feel that our story can offer hope. And so for me as a filmmaker, I felt well, my responsibility is to try to distill the abstraction of hope and ask myself, well, what does hope mean and look like for this family? Wow, that sounds like a deep conversation, Mark. Come back next week to hear that interview with filmmaker Garrett Bradley. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson, and our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. He also made our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. 
visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Is that the intro? Ha, ha, ha.